0: Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Kirk Fernandez, founder of Merit and veteran of the product management industry. been really looking forward to having you on the podcast. I'm excited about this conversation. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you maybe start off by just taking us through your career journey leading up until this point? Sure. Sure.
1: So I'm Kirk. I grew up in Canada in Mississauga, Ontario. I studied computer science and math at the University of Waterloo. Originally, I wanted to be an architect, um, and that kind of stopped when I talked to an architect and actually figured out what they actually did. And I immediately pivoted right. to computer science. <laughs> the way I actually picked computer science, if you want to find this interesting, is I literally googled at the time what are the jobs that are growing, and literally the answer oh, came back tech jobs. And I was like, what jobs? What professions do you need? It's like programming. I was like, okay. What are the what is the undergrad degree that you need to have to get to be a in Computer science. What are the best schools in Canada for computer science? University of Waterloo. That's literally how I picked my major. It was wow. like, A reverse search like that. So you can tell it was a very like empirical, (laughs) (laughs) empirical teenager. Yeah. (laughs) That's literally how I picked computer science and mathematics. Um, I studied computer science and mathematics. I graduated 2011 from the University of Waterloo. We have like a pretty famous co-op program. So I did co-op internships. I did a lot of front-end engineering. I did a lot of product management. And I think kind of when I was doing those co-op internships, I love products. I like working on software, but I realized I would never be the best kind of engineer. And what I really liked was kind of making the decisions around the customers, what we choose to build, how we actually (laughs) built it, how we work as a team. And that kind of got me into product management. And I did an internship at Microsoft in Microsoft Office, if you remember that product. That's right. um, As a product manager there. And I did two internships there and really, really liked it. And I went back full time and I kind of had this idea of what product management was. I moved to Seattle in 2011 and I was at Microsoft for about three, three and a half years Um, And what was very, very funny is that I took the job of product management, program manager at Microsoft, thinking it was a designer, like uh, thinking I would design the actual products. And Microsoft at that time did not have a big design bench and talent and actually designed the products. Um, So it took me a year and a half to realize that is not the job of product management. The job of product management (laughs) is to research the problems and to frame it and set up the team for success and guide the engineers and designers towards solving the actual product. Um, I had a really, really interesting, fun, weird time at Microsoft. I was there for like three and a half years. I worked on a bunch of products in office and in windows. Right. Um, and eventually I essentially almost became a senior product manager there. There was this brief period where I was a prototype designer for a year. Cause I really, really wanted to prototype and build interactive stuff there. Um, and then ultimately I realized I was doing pretty well, but I wanted to move faster, work in a okay. smaller en- environment. So what I realized is I wanted to like live in a bigger city but work at a smaller company. And that's it. kind of what pointed me to look at startups in New York. Um, I looked at a bunch of different startups. There was one that really caught my eye, and it was called Hightower, and it was like a B two B kind of SaaS company in the commercial real estate tech industry. Really liked the team, really liked the founders, and honestly, at this time, 2015, it was kind of novel to have a company with the business model and revenue and a very clear target (laughs) target segment, like a lot of startups in New York were like Vine and a bunch of weird consumer products that really didn't know what they were doing in terms of monetization or model or problem. So it was almost novel to work for a real problem and a real piece of software for real industry. Um, And I was really gravitated towards working for the co-founders. Donald had a very strong product and design and engineering background. Um, And I worked at Hightower from 2015 to 2016. It was really fun. It was my first time becoming a manager. I was the head of product there. Um, and then it was also really fun to then merge with our nearest competitor, VTS. And I went through like uh, a very interesting thing of a merger kind of acquisition. And that's like a whole story in startups of like when you get acquired or when you merge with another company and kind of overnight we went from, I joined as like the 40th employee. Hightower ended up becoming 100 employees. And then when we merged, we overnight became 200 employees. And oh when wow. I left, it was, it was like 250. Um, and then I, I kind of learned a lot in that period of just like managing, scaling big teams, all the kind of mid-stage startup, like growing pains, like scaling the teams, the, the, the revenue lines, the products, keeping people happy, working at a startup at a very high intensity. And around like the end of 2017, I was like, I kind of want to do my own thing and I need to go figure this out. So I kind of oh, quit my job. I kind of quit my job at the end of 2017. And then it was like this weird year in 2018 where I kind of, Go, joke. It's like wandering the desert Year where essentially I tried a bunch <laughs> of great ideas. A lot of them didn't work. I ran out of money. I got married, spent all our money. Um, <laughs> and then also ultimately decided to kind of coalesce on some experiences that I, that I kind of had at BTS, which were around managing teams, managing teams of under networked, underrepresented people and realizing a lot of what I was doing there was really kind of sharing my network with them so they could meet the right people at the right time to kind of grow oh, their career. And that kind of bursts kind of the idea around Merit, which is a career mentorship platform for under network tech workers. And it's very selfishly the product and tool I wish I had when I was a manager. So right. I could have been a lot better manager and help grow the careers of all the people that worked for me. So Merit is like a weird summation of all of my work before that like working as a designer engineer a pm working in big small and kind of consulting roles yeah. and being a manager and an ic it kind of connects all those dots and it's kind of like now this next chapter um and i'm at my co-founder randy and we kind of Went through so many variations and iterations of that product in 2019. We launched it as a program, and then a tech-enabled program, and then a prototype. And now it's a platform, a full software platform that has like almost 4,000 people, 400 mentors on it, and there were a mini team around it. So it's quite a different state from that kind of initial yeah. like, prototype. Um, but kind of what I look back in my career, what's like the driving line is like I really do like building products. Doesn't really matter what the role is, but making stuff that solves people' problems solves problems for people. And I really like building teams and managing teams and growing teams. Um, so talent and like recruiting and mentorship and HR, that's really been a through line for me. Um, so Merit is like the amalgamation of product that kind of builds and creates and generates these kind of teams, these relationships. So it's kind of like my my life's work. Kind of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very cool. I mean, immediately, I'm so excited to dive into so many different areas of kind of that journey. I, I, maybe I'll start at the beginning because I think even though we did have a conversation prior to sitting down to record, uh, yeah. already a couple things are jumping off the, the kind of screen to me where we have got a lot of overlap in kind of how we approached our university careers and kind of yeah, the, the decisions me. we made there. Because I mean, both Waterloo grads, both went through the co-op program, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. also, I also early stages of like high school thought I want to be an architect. What does every guy
1: guy think they want to be an
0: architect? You know what, for me, (laughs) funny enough, it was because I thought I had really good spatial sense. I was a strong (laughs) visual artist, right? I was good with math. So I thought all of those (laughs) things intersect with um, architecture, I guess. And I think also, and you tell me, there's this like grandiose idea of building something that uh, stands the test of time, right? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, totally. Totally. So I think I really resonate with that because like, I'm like incredibly stubborn with like product and teams Right. like, I'm very much of like, I'm the most impressed by the products that don't change. Right. Like that's, which is like the, like the house or the architecture or the cathedral or whatever. And the funny thing with startups is like everything. Changes. Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> but I think what's interesting about the ethos behind that, right. Yeah. Is that I, I think you'll find that the majority of really successful fortune 100, fortune 500 companies are companies that are very quickly growing now. What doesn't change is maybe like the core vision. Yes, the, yeah. the vision stays true. Yeah. So that's yeah, yeah. really the founding principle that maybe yeah. resonates with somebody like yourself who yeah. in founding Merit, right? I doubt that that's changed. But what i so yeah. very curious though, just to bring it back to the architecture piece is like you spoke yeah. to somebody. I had that same experience. I spoke to an architect. We all did. We and all I'm did. Very, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very curious. What put, what put you off the path, right? Because I also following that conversation was like, this is not for me.
1: You know, I think I have like a big aversion to credentialing. And, like, Uh, any
0: field that has,
1: like, license, which is hilarious because, like, we need to depend on, like, doctors and lawyers and stuff like that. But, like, anything that is, like, about credentials, it's, like, antithetical to, like, that's why Merit doesn't have, like... That, like the joke of why it's called merit, it's like, you know, it's what if the industry was an actual meritocracy? What if the ah, act of actually right. doing the work was like the credit for what you get? Right. So I think something with architecture is really around just the time involved to practice, because you have to do not just undergrad, you have to do a master's, you have to do an article ship. It's like a long ramp. up. Yes. Time. So I think it's the impatience, impatient nature to it. Like I was always very impatient to at Microsoft, too. Like I was very petulant with how slow things were. So I think just the amount of time to become an architect immediately put me off of it.
0: Yeah, I (laughs) I think that I think I had a very similar reaction. And also, you know, the conversation I had was that once you finished all that education and credentialization, there's not really a job there that pays really well waiting for you right away. (laughs) And I was like, well, what's the point? Right? Because I mean, why else am I going to university? And I think then that's why I think this probably resonated with you at Waterloo, especially with that specialized co-op program, right? You're getting paid during school. Now, all of a sudden, school makes sense to me, right? Because instead of just paying to learn. I'm now getting paid to learn and totally. do things that are concrete. And then on the flip side of that, you know, I was going there on the premise that 99 point something percent of people who come out of the, um, out of the, uh, co-op program, were are getting hired into strong roles and companies. I'm like, that's exactly what I want. I want to get hired immediately. Right. So, I mean, I, I have to imagine that that resonated with you as well.
1: Yeah. I think the I mean, even more material. One, yes. Like I think the, being able to work sooner than than later and being able to pay your own way. And like honestly, the whole the whole thing of like not depending on OSAP or my That's parents right. from, for money was like a huge deal for Big me. Deal. Totally. Like being able to like control my own shit and like not have anyone critique it because like ultimately I was getting the money then paying my own bills, right? That was huge. That's a huge yeah. thing for me. And you're totally right. Like I think Waterloo is like a factory for that kind of knowledge worker right now. Like I think it's I still find it so bizarre that that model, when you come to America and you work in America how they still don't copy that model like that model works that model works you don't need a lot of money to implement that model but for whatever reason it's mostly i think based on tradition of like these elite institutions in america they just don't copy that model they just don't do co-op just don't, I, just, yeah. I just don't know why. It's the best way to do it, but they but still Even, don't do even do the it. way that it's co-
0: but to your point though, even the way that it's copied in Canada, if you look at U of T, a primary yeah. competitor of Waterloo, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. in engineering, they do do a co-op, but they, I think they do it for 12 to 16 months at the end or the culmination yeah, of your yeah, four years. Yeah. That's not enough. You don't get the breadth of experiences like you described, for example, having a number of different experiences. Yeah. I work for two or three different really large telco companies as well as a smaller nonprofit yeah. organization. And I had this breadth of experiences that really helped me understand what I was good at, what I wasn't, what I liked, what I didn't like, most importantly, right? And then yeah. going through the practice of interviewing 10 to 15 times per like co-op semester right that made me very sharp and good at that by the time i came out of it and i agree i'm really confused why that model hasn't been simply adopted to any university uh, in north america that is uh you know technology focused or mathematics or you know engineering focused i totally agree but so i mean you know having said that though right um you then come out of that. You, you continue from internship into full-time at Microsoft. You talk about, you know, a little bit at impatience. I think for yeah. people earlier in their careers, that resonates with folks really strongly because I too am impatient. I want quick, yeah. quick progression, quick growth, quick learning. So talk a little bit about that. How did your impatience translate to how you kind of navigated your career at Microsoft specifically?
1: I think it's funny now because now I'm a founder and like, I get like a founder salary and a founder stress and like founder workload. And I look back at the time at Microsoft and I was like that. Like good job was like wasted on me. I was like, I (laughs) (laughs) I definitely would have appreciated that word out. I think it's more like, there's like a thing where, you know, it's like Microsoft is a big tech company. So like a hundred thousand people work there. They work on every single kind of product line, those big tech companies. And there's a lot of them now, like Microsoft was kind of the older version there. It's a certain, it's a certain status to work in those big companies. It's a, it's a certain kind of life. And I think quality of life. And it's a certain kind of team and project work that's drastically dependent on what team you work on. So if you work on a good team and a good project, it is a very like fun, high-end job. Um, If you don't, or if it's not the team that you like, it's a very different experience. So it's very hard to have like a one Microsoft experience. But it is a big company and a big company is different than a startup where like, the benefit of a big company is that it works by default. Like right. it just, it, pr- it prints money. Like whether you show up or not, it works, right? Um, a startup is by default does not work. And it only works if people show up and like make it work. So it's a very like the the pro of a startup is it does not work. And there's a lot of value in showing up every day. <laughs> the, the, the pro of a big company or the negative of a big company is it does not, it does work every day. You can show up every day. So like just a different mindset of how you approach work and your time and leverage and all those things. But I think my mistake and the advice I would give myself going back is like trying to force it, Microsoft, to feel like, you know, a 50% startup. It's just never going to happen. So like yeah. you might as well either move to that 50% startup or just embrace the fact that it's a company that works and really lean into all that shit. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy it. Um, and I think like this first year and a half, I just wanted it to be something else and it was never going to be that. And I think right. I, only, I only really, really liked that job and really started to do honestly do well. It was like when I acknowledge what it was and getting the most out of that job. So like the weird thing you could do at like Microsoft is like, you know, if they liked you and they wanted to promote you, you could just keep asking for weird shit and assignments and projects and things like that from your manager because they wanted to keep talent. Right. Yeah. So like there was this period where I just wanted to work a lot and there just wasn't that much work for a product manager at Microsoft. So I just invented another role. Like I was (laughs) invented a prototype designer role and I did that role at the same time for like a year. And that was like, that was like
0: enough work for me to feel happy. (laughs) So talk about that that for a second though, because, uh, you know, I feel like you have to have a certain amount of trust and leverage and demonstrated high performance to to, to be able to, to, you know, make a proposal like that and have that green lit. Right. No, and I, I think everyone has something to offer, but there are high performers and there are non-high performers. And somebody who doesn't necessarily fall into that category is probably not going to be lended that sort of agency to do something like that. So how exactly did you present how did you have build the leverage? How did you then present that? What was the business case? Because I think there's people out there who also want to do something like that.
1: Yeah, I think at that time, it was like a year and a half in, they knew I was good. They knew I was very good at certain things. Like I was a very good kind of consumer-facing product manager. They knew I always wanted more work. They knew I was like very unhappy with like the velocity and the speed sure. of stuff. And they kind of viewed, there weren't a lot of designers at the time at Microsoft. There weren't a lot of like product managers. This is like a mix of my background where like, you know, I could code and I could prototype and I could iterate on stuff and that made me a strong PM. But also I think that's the skill set that was missing on the design team. So I kind of filled a gap for them too. So like I worked in the design studio right. as a prototype designer. And then I also was a PM. So like I had a year of like good high quality work and they could trust me. And then I also just had kind of access capacity. So I kind of timed it up and I was like you know, this is solving a team for the larger, this is solving a need for the larger team. We're kind of making a lot more progress. I think I made like 40 or 50, like different iterations or prototypes oh, wow. and products there. Um, but I was also was like, I'm still doing my team and my workload and all that stuff. So I was getting a lot better at it too. So like, it's, it's at the point where like, I, I was doing really well as a PM and also the design team needed help. So it was like right. you know, their solution. It was, it was my solution as well. Um, and then I did that for kind of like a year. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And then I kind of like did my piece where I kind of handed off, taught more people how to prototype. It was kind of distributed. They kind of hired more designers as well. Um, but that was just, I just looked back on that. I was like, it's a very odd thing for for someone to, someone sure. to ask. Should, should have asked for more money. And then I think about it. because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was doing two jobs, but yeah, um, it was a thing, just scratched the itch at the time. Like, you know, when you're young, you just, it's mostly energy, right? Like you're not
0: you're not thinking very hard. <laughs> like you're thinking hard, but you're not thinking that hard. You know, you're right, just doing Right, stuff, right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I, I, but I mean, so I think you talk a little bit about the fact that you have this interesting breadth of experiences at, mm. let's say, a 100,000 person company. Then you make a yeah. transition into a startup environment of 40 yeah. employees, scales to yeah. 100 to 200 to 250. And yeah. all the while, you're doing product across these yeah. uh, places. So, you know, I think for me personally, uh, I, I I'm, have worked in the data field the data industry in a managed services capacity for the better part of nine years now right and yeah. so data careers have changed dramatically in that decade and while I've been you know kind of evolving my career in data I've also noticed you know on the managed services side PM meant project manager early Charlie, on not Charlie. product but in tech, it pro- is where you know the product management is born, right? And that's kind of where you came up. I'd love for you to, because I haven't really explored it on this uh, podcast and f- selfishly, I'd love to know from an expert like yourself, where does, for example, a project manager's role start and end? Where does a product manager's role start and end? What's similar about them? What's different? And then how is product and project manager kind of colliding and working together in kind of this current state of, of tech and managed services and kind of industry?
1: Yeah, I would say... My definition, and it, it, it is kind of changes, project management is, it's the scope and ownership of like a very particular team project outcome that's mm-hmm. usually like time by and it's like a lot of people could do that. It's very executional. It's very communicative. It's very, it's essentially a form of like low level management. And and a manager could do it, a senior, a designer, an engineer could do it. And like if you don't have a PM, someone is always doing project management, essentially. Right. right? That's all, that labor is always happening, whether it's being called by them. I think a lot of people have then taken that role and made it more like delivery manager, scrum master, you know, it, it's kind of become like processified a little bit, but like the blocking and tackling of organizing people and getting towards getting the work done, that work is always gonna be done. Right. Whether it's called project management or whatever, that work is always being done. In smaller teams, it's usually the more senior person, it's usually the managers, but it's in, in bigger teams, you have a product manager. Product manager, my definition is kind of like leading, and this is like in a software sense and hardware it scales out and it's sure. very dependent on stage, but it's like, you know, you are responsible for some outcome and maximizing it. So whether it's a, a business metric, a revenue metric, um, an engagement metric, and you're just... E- organizing the team around what problems need to be solved for the customer. And then like, does, you know, framing the problem, design the problem and delivering the the solution is right? Right. like full end, right. From design engineering. PM, And it's really like a leading, it's like you're responsible for essentially outcomes and like artifacts really is the big thing. It's kind of like management where you don't directly do the work, right. but you frame the work for the people you work through it. Um, with the particular skills and you kind of organize the team, set the goals, which is a big part, frame the problems, which is a big part. Um, so it's kind of like a metal level job. So it is kind of like overhead in a way, but Interesting. There, there gets to, yeah, that, that's how I, I view it as overhead. I view product management as overhead. Um, and I view managers as overhead. I view all, it's right. all over. Um, so in a small team, a really senior person that's a designer and engineer could do the work of product management. Um, and I think it can definitely be taught. But I think when the customer gets... Bigger or more specific, or the product gets really big, then a dedicated person, I think, makes a little bit more sense. But my hot take from like doing product management is like we should do less formalized product management. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think we should have less PMs overall. Like, I think PMs should be bound. Like, it's a very specific kind of resource, and they have to be really smart, but they also have to be like really likable and, and like friendly. And like, not a lot of people are like that, <laughs> right? <laughs> just like in the world, right? So, like, I just think there should be less PMs overall.
0: <laughs> well, so what I'm what I'm interested in, in this in. And- And and again, coming from a consulting or managed services background, right, is that, you know, traditional client engagements that I would have experienced prior to kind of this movement of product management and scaling that uh, over the last decade is, you know, you would have a client partner who kind of leads the engagement and they are the ones soliciting and extracting the business problems out of a client, right? And then helping shape that for the team. And then you have like a strategist who is leading, shaping the engagement. Yes. But what you just described to me is a little bit of both, but then yes. maybe at a more functional level from a product management perspective.
1: Yeah. I, I think you're right. Cause it is a bit of like, and like, it's kind of like the AM say like account customer success that you're directly talking to customers all yeah. the time and stakeholders. But then there's this like loop where you have to translate that. So it's not verbatim. Right. And right. that's like the framing of the problem. And in a really healthy team, you have a really strong designer, a really strong engineer and like their actually crafting most of the solution together what you're really doing is setting the goals the frameworks measuring kind of ensuring the end-to-end success of it which is a lot of work right like there's a lot of work just to design the thing there's a lot of work to actually execute and deliver the thing the whole thing of measuring framing communicating all that other work that has to be done Um, in the roles that i've worked in it works really well if there is a strong product manager who really goes deep with the customer and really knows the team and the company really well and the business model really well. And they have strong designers and engineers. That's not always the case, but that's the best version of it. They still do the project management, but they do a lot more like, the higher up you go in product management, the more leverage you have. So like right. the better you are at setting vision and strategy, the less work you have to do at the goal level, the better you do the goals, the less work you have to do at the backlog level, the better you set up the backlog, the less work you have to do at the spec level, the better you set the spec, the less work you have to do at the project management level. Right. So it's like, it's a hierarchy of kind of where you set structure and clarity. Interesting. And just it's, yeah. So like... I always when I used to mentor PMs, I'm like, you're fucking up if you're spending a lot of time in project management because it's, you have to you didn't set kind of the stack, right? You didn't walk everyone through the stack. Yeah. Um, I tell Randy, who's my co-founder, who's doing a lot of product development. I was like, the hardest part is setting the goals and the strategy and the vision. Like if you can nail that everything, every step becomes easier from there. Right. right. You can't you can't kind of cheat cheat that intellectual hierarchy. So I think a lot of PMs just get dropped in at the bottom because they're like, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And no one set the level above it. And they just spend a lot of time in project management. They're usually very smart people. They're usually very responsible people. Right. And they're usually people that, you know, um, get a lot of work done. So they always start there because there's always, there's always project management work to be done. Right. But you need to like build a space and time to go up all those levels and coordinate with like, you know, the CEO and all that shit. Um, So like project management is always the easiest to hire for because it's so obvious what the work is, but the other work needs to get done. It needs to get done really well. But you need to create space and time for that work. So, like that's always that's always the issue with PM is that they're always hired too late. They always get stuck at the lower levels, and they need to build enough lead at the lower levels to actually pick their head up and then actually plan and kind of do the longer framework. And the more you do that, then the less work you spend at the bottom. But that's you know that's the ideal version. Every PM I know struggles with with that.
0: Yeah, well, I think depth. that's very interesting. Yeah. And I think, even yeah. as you described that, you've, uh, I, I think my understanding of where a product manager fits in a, in a traditional client engagement that I might have, let's say, focusing on digital business transformation with a global company or whatever, I start yeah. to have a better sense of like what their role should be and how they augment in a cross functional team that includes that account manager that. You know, uh, strategists, the the capability strategists, then a capability delivery leads, et cetera. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm curious though, because you go from a hundred thousand person company to a 40, to a hundred, to two, to 250. So you did product at an enormous scale. Then you did product at a very fast paced, small scale, and small then it started scale. to scale up again. Right. Yeah, so I'm yeah, curious, yeah. what was the difference? Uh, <clears throat> is the, Was there a difference? I guess, how did your opinion of product evolve, right? Or your experience in product evolve? Maybe talk a little bit about that contrast, especially since you then started the upswing and scale again towards the yeah, end yeah, of yeah. your time there.
1: They're very different. So product management at Microsoft, there's like product management in a big company on like new zero to one products and then existing like one to end products. So like, right zero to one in a big company is still a little bit slow, but it's fun. You get, you know, we built this like, um, kind of calendaring slash events product for like a little bit. And that's like zero to one. It's super fun, but it's still under the, the mandate of like Microsoft. So like distribution is just a lot easier. You don't have to like fight for users, like how I fight for users in Merit, but it's still like a zero to one style product. Yeah. Product management I like Office where or Outlook, where there's like a built-in product line and user base and expectations, you know, you have a lot more hierarchy, you own a lot less, but you go a lot deeper. So it's like you would own a slice of a pie, but that pie goes to like 300 million people. Right. So it's like, you know, you own a percent, you own like a sliver of this thing where, and it, and it's a lot harder to ship stuff. There's a lot more requirements. There's a lot higher sure. bar. There's there's a higher, there's a lower risk tolerance, all the standard stuff, right? Right but it's much more about like, okay, I need to ship this. Like I was in charge of like all the main like calendar interactions and navigation. I was like the core UX PM and like calendar app. So like, it's not that big of an area, but it has to work in every language and every locale and every platform on every device. So like, and it has to ship, you know, it ships in like, uh, it ships on like October 28th and like, you know, it's like, there's like a big release schedule because that's a ship with the tablet. So like you have to do crazy amount of work, backs, so You have to do crazy amount of coordination, all these like APIs, all these dependencies. It's just like a very complicated process to ship a very small thing, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, but it goes to all a shit ton of people. Like nothing I have built thus far has got more users than that thing that I built at Microsoft Right, as far as I know. Right. And like, it's just very different. Right. Um, and it's debatable. Like if I showed up would would I have masticly, drastically changed the amount of people who use that product? I don't really know. Um, so just very different way of thinking about product. Hightower is like, okay, I'm joining a post product market fit SaaS company. So like SaaS and post product market fit are the biggest indicators of what it is, which is like, they have a product, it works, they're growing revenue. They have strong engagement, strong retention, now it comes a question of how are you going to scale and grow the product and like, why? So now you're thinking about like, how are you actually going to grow the software part of it? Right. Um, And it's a lot harder because it's like, you're shifting from the founders doing kind of everything to like delegating some of that stuff to PM. So it's a shit ton of domain knowledge that like I have to come get up to speed with the domain. The teams are way smaller, they're way faster, but there's way less requirements. So you can ship every day, every week. Um, so the speed and the intensity is a lot faster. And the the thing that I really liked about Hightower, which I do at, at all my companies now, is like, I got to talk to customers every single day directly. Right. That is the absolute best part. In Microsoft, it was very much obfuscated and aggregated through research. And like, you know, there's all these departments that talk to salespeople, account managers. There's just a much bigger membrane between you and the customer in a big company. Whereas in a startup, like you are talking to a customer every single, even at a 50, even at a 250 person company, like you are, you're talking to users every single day. Sure. Um, So that's the big functional difference there. Um, And then it becomes really fun once it starts picking up is like scaling out, like building a team for the first time, delegating out the products, going up a level. So I think about like, you know, from backlog to goals to strategy and vision to like uh, to roadmap like going up the levels of a product manager and then doing that for a team and a product right. speed and a product yeah and then like merging and then merging two products is like a different thing yeah so it's like the speed the intensity the scope and i'd say the impact are just very different like i think you actually have a much bigger impact at bigger companies it's just your scope and your like autonomy is much smaller, right? Um, you have a lot more autonomy and a lot more velocity, but the impact takes a while to really compound, right? Like, I don't think Hight- I don't know, think Hightower has, I don't think Hightower will ever get the amount of users that Microsoft Outlook has, just because, right. Of course, it's, just- <laughs> it's gonna be really hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm hoping like Merit one day can reach LinkedIn status. You know, I have hundreds of millions and billions of people. That's the goal. But you know, we're still in the thousands, right? At Merit, so it's right. still a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, so, you know what I'd love to understand, though, is um, in your opinion, having worked yeah. in these different types of environments, for someone who's embarking on a career in product, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what order do would you recommend doing this in? Starting doing product in a smaller environment, leaner environment, or starting at an environment like Microsoft? I guess the reason I ask this question is you talk about the fact that you do one very small sliver yeah. of an enormous service offering or product offering at Microsoft. And yeah, okay, it has enormous reach, enormous adoption, et cetera. But you're very specialized. You're very specialized. And while you might learn very rigorous process, approach, systems, et cetera, and that is all Mm -hmm. established at scale, Mm -hmm. your, your knowledge base that you're developing is extremely specific and niche, right? Yeah. Whereas... I'm imagining that that's very much the opposite when you're in a small environment where you have much broader uh, perspective and and development of learning. Right. So, yeah. so w- which, in which order is is more valuable for someone embarking on a product uh, career?
1: I might actually give the advice I did not follow, which is like a big tech company, like, like a, you know, like a 30 year old tech company or 20 year old, like Google's like 10 years old now, right? Like right. Um, those companies, I don't know. I think like I've, I did my life for every stage is harder than the last. So like <laughs> <is that laughs> in a, in every dimension we'll have kids and that's going to be harder than being married, which is, you know, it's like that kind of thing, right? Like, yeah. so every, every, so like, that's always going to be my MO. So I don't necessarily think everyone wants to do that. I think what's interesting is now there are just way more bigger growth stage tech companies. And I'm thinking right. of like something before a Shopify. So like Um, even like an Uber or an Airbnb or, um, like I'm trying to think of what's a really big one, like, um, Stripe. Like there are a lot of companies where you get a little bit of both, where it's big enough that you don't know everyone, but there's still good pay and there's lots of resources, but they're still launching kind of newer products. Right. I actually think like join a startup that's obviously going to work out. Like it was not obvious that Hightower was going to work out when I joined it. It had money and it was like a, it was like now it's going to work out. But at the moment, it was not obvious it was going to work out. I think those kind of companies are good because it builds your network. There's still good, meaningful work, but it's somewhere in between the two. Right, like It's not quite just like a full... Google big company, but it's not quite like, you know, a Series C, even a Series D startup. It's like much later stage. Like they are they are that that company is working. It's just a public, it's just a private company. <laughs> so maybe it's a
0: much more balanced experience where you get a yeah. little bit of that process, the mature process yes. and scale, maybe mentorship, yes. but you yeah. also get the responsibility and the quick moving environment, fast learning, breadth of learning. And you're more
1: likely to carry that network of people you meet through the next jobs because then everyone kind of splinters out. This is like a very sure. American point of view where there's all these startups and exits And acquisitions. Like a lot of the people I met at Hightower became like users or customers or investors in my company. And, you know, like I think there's more of that kind of hopping. Whereas there was kind of a big cliff between my Microsoft network and my New York network, obviously, because I was in Seattle and that was New York. But like, I think joining a growth stage startup that is like obviously working, like in thousands of employees. Is probably a, a better way because also they, they, those companies still struggle to hire people. Like Microsoft doesn't struggle to hire people. Like yeah. millions of people apply to Microsoft. So I think that's actually a good kind of in between. And it's really for the network and it's a good mix of like, you're going to get paid well. It's not going to be crazy. There's like an HR department, um, <laughs> but there's still, but there's still like things to be built and things to like. It still matters, yeah, kind of that like you course. show up in something that, You know, it's like I think that's something I was like I really just went straight into like what was the earliest stage thing I could do. So that was very like, cool. Yeah,
0: I, I think that, I think that makes make a ton of sense. sense. Oh, of course, sense? yeah, I think yeah. it makes it makes absolute yeah. sense. It's a, it's yeah. a perfect balance, right? I think it, there's a, there's a level of risk, but there's a level of comfort. Um, yeah, and then like, most importantly, like you said, like uh, there's enough. Um, maturity and structure and process, but also enough, like, uh, agile and kind of, uh, fast paced learning with breadth that, that really serves you. And also, I think the, the, the comment you made around that you carry your network forwards, I have yeah. to imagine that that's a result of the fact that the work you're doing has real material impact and you're valuable to the team. So yes. everyone is kind of noticing what value you brought. And if you did, in fact, bring value, well, they're going to want to work with you again. You carry that network outward. I mean, that makes yeah. total sense. Right. And, and in saying that right i think it's a perfect bridge into the fact that you know high tower vts you you quit right and i guess i'm curious then when you did quit you knew you wanted to do your own thing Right. Yeah. but You kind of mentioned that you, you had that period of a year or whatever it was uh, yeah, where yeah, you yeah. were kind of walking through the desert. So maybe talk a little bit about like, how did you build yourself up to, to quitting? What were the things that you considered the risks that you were mitigating or kind of yeah, willing to tolerate? Because yeah, yeah. a lot of people have visions, have ideas and can't realize them because they're bogged down in a very busy job and they want to make the leap. But maybe, maybe they don't know how. They don't know what decisioning framework to leverage. How did you do it?
1: Yeah. I think that period is very funny. And I think I was also very burnt out to be perfectly honest. I, okay. I think like 20, 2017, I think I was burnt out a little bit from the merger and I think it shifted from like um kind of growing pains of the user base or the revenue or the team to like more like cultural and team navigation and people oh, just kind of, you know, like people are like, I don't want to, it's in a merger. You don't, you kind of merge two companies and like, you don't necessarily get to pick the people you work with. And it's very different than a hundred percent company where everyone gets to pick every single person. It's very, very specific. I think the teams are just kind of burnt out. There's a bunch of cultural miss, mismatch, and we went to like do kind of this big year long, project project, which is like merge two sets of products and revenue lines to one user base. That was the whole goal of the merger. It was a successful project, but I think I was just a little bit burnt out at that time. And very funnily enough, I was like, okay, I think I don't necessarily want to go deeper into this. I don't want to be the head of product at this company. That was kind of my takeaway. So I was like, okay, if I don't want to be the head, if I don't want to be the, the or whatever of this new company, I need to figure out what the next move is. And funnily enough, Um, I was going through like visa stuff and I finally got my green card. And I think when I got my green card that like September or whatever, I think I told my wife, Donnie. I was like, Hey, I think I should quit. I like got the green card on Friday. I like told her, I told her on Friday and then on Monday, I think I told my boss, it was like very, I didn't have like an idea of what I was going to do. I just was like, I need to go to this next day. Um, and then it became, this is the thing where I fucked up. Um, I didn't like properly time leaving. So like I stayed, I stayed maybe a little bit longer than I should have. I also didn't have an idea or a <laughs> I didn't, people were like, asking me like, what's the company you're going to start? I was like, I don't know. I just kept making shit up every single time. I was like, kept changing the answer. Just like a weird exit, but everyone's like, okay, good luck. This seems like fun. You're going to have a lot of fun, I guess. Um, I just knew that I wanted to leave and I knew that I wanted to go do something like essentially harder. Right. And I thought that right. was like the next step. Um, what was funny then uh, next year is that, since I didn't have like a framed problem or I had ideas, but they were like very vague and loose ideas. Um, And it took me like six months of trying different stuff and not making a lot of progress and working by myself and getting a little bit weird. And then kind of after (laughs) getting married, having more of a deadline and a work back and feeling like there's momentum on this idea around merit. And at that time it was like a tool that checked bias on like peer feedback. It was like a very weird tool but it was enough to like start a conversation to show people to kind of challenge. And then I kind of met my co-founder, Randy, that period was very weird because it was incredibly unstructured and very chaotic. And it's not kind of when I talked to other founders, how they came to their, how they came to their ideas. Oh, interesting. They, all, they all usually have now run a little bit more of a thoughtful process. So they go wide and try, I, did, I tried a bunch of things, but like, I look back and I was like, I was definitely still like young because I didn't have like, didn't figure out my money. I didn't figure out like health insurance. Like there's a (laughs) lot of things I did not figure out. And it took me a while to kind of explore and you can't cheat that process. Like you're just going to have to go through that. Just a question of how much fun you have during it. I had a lot more fun in the second half of the year when I felt things moving and the dots connecting. Um, But that was purely like an exploration year. Like I took some time off. I traveled. I saw my family um i learned i like se- i like sold everything in my apartment i like moved out i moved in with then my fiance we like planned a wedding i did consulting at that time which also gave me a lot of respect for like freelancers it right. was like a weird time where i did a bunch of weird things um, traveling back and forth between my family in canada my, my my apartment in new york it was just like a hodgepodge of stuff um and it was just almost like maybe processing a little bit of the burnout and taking a little bit of like sure. time to reset and that might have taken like 6 months or so and then Once I got the, it's funny because it all kind of happens. And once you get the consulting, you have the idea, then you meet the co-founder, then it all kind of coalesces and clicks. And then like at the start of 2019, we like then oriented ourselves around like, all right, this is this new thing that we want to work on. How do we want to work on it? What's our commitment? Do we want to work together? That Then that starts that conversation. But 2018 was like, mostly by myself. Like that whole year was pretty was pretty much by myself and I got really weird.
0: <laughs> so what I'm curious about though, because obviously like as you describe it, you're also going through a huge, uh, I guess, moment in your life in terms of getting, planning a wedding and then getting married <coughs> with your fiance, right? Like merging yeah. households. That yeah. is in itself, you know, a big shift. And so in order for you to be able to do that, right? I, I think, I feel like there's an enormous amount of trust and support you have to have from your partner to be able to constantly yeah. be like, I'm going to quit my job without a plan. And, yes. you know, believe in me that I will figure this out, even though it's going to overlap with this other really important part of our lives. So maybe, you know, I think that's an important thing that people also have to deal with when they are making decisions like this. So, like, what kind of conversation was that like with your partner, you know, and and how did you build that trust?
1: Yeah. So my wife, well, one, I just have a very, very lucky to, have, to be married to my wife, Donnie. So Donnie's background, she also went to Waterloo, oh, um, like which is which is where we met. Um, and she has a career, a deep career in marketing. So right now she's like the VP of global marketing at SE. So she's like very high up in L'Oreal. Got L'Oreal's it. The, the company, she does product marketing, product marketing. Um, she studied chemistry and business, um, at that time. So I think Donnie and I are very similar, which is we're both like career kind of ambitious people We're both like relationship and like family and friends, people. And I think we're just like we're just like almost too trusting of people. Cause I told Donnie, I was like, hey, I want to quit my job and start a company. I have like no idea what it is, who I'm going to work with it, work with. And she's like, go for it. <laughs> 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 well, we, well, we, maybe should have, and we were like children then, I guess I was like 27, right? We're um, 20, 28. Um, what I wish we did is like figure out our healthcare and how much money we right. have. And like, should we live in that apartment? Um, and maybe I should set some goals and deadlines and all that stuff. But she was incredibly supportive. Um, and I think, I think this, this kind of stuff only works with those kind of people. But I also think like every startup founder has that one or two years where you're not making money, you put in your own money, the salary isn't quite there. You're on their health insurance in, in, in America. And there's almost always a spouse that's like holding down the fort, right? Yeah. Like um, my co-founder Randy is single and like, he's had to kind of do it by himself, but like without Donnie, like, I don't think merit would be where it is just in terms of emotional support, financial, like I could take a lower, I could take a lower salary cause she has a real salary. Um, we could, I could be on her healthcare because that's one less cost for merit, right? There's all these small things you do at the start when you're just like putting shit together. Um, so like the spouse, the, the, the stable, the spouse with the stable job is always the unsung hero and any, and all these starting stories and like, Everyone you talk to, I'm like, how do you get away with that? Oh, you have a spouse. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that's hilarious. Yeah. I, but I, yeah, think yeah. so poignant, right? I think it's so poignant, right? Because I think in general, They're always
1: there. They're yeah, always there.
0: And I think that's such an important thing to highlight that that strong partnership really helps you navigate that very unstructured time. But also, I think the way you describe that year of kind of discovery and uh, you described it as a hodgepodge, unstructured, no goals, but it is in deep, deep contrast with the prior you know, six or so years of... Of working in in a very structured, Structure. goal oriented, process oriented yeah. role, where that's what you lived and breathed. So I wonder if maybe that contrast actually is what helped birth the idea in itself, because it, it challenged you to think differently and live differently for a period that maybe then accelerated that kind of idea generation. So I, I mean, there there could be some you know uh, you know funny enough merit in that, right? In, in terms of how merit was born,
1: to- totally. And merit is like a deep a deep, it is a deep meditation on the previous jobs I had before. even the freelancing part where I was consulting for a little bit and I was like, consulting sucks. It's like a really hard, it's it's, it's like, it's a lot of work. It's like the, to me, it was like the worst of both worlds. Like being a founder and an employer is like a shit ton of stress, but you have like control. Like I choose, I go get money and I choose how I spend it at the high as I'm literally a capitalist, right? Like I go get capital and I deploy capital, right? right? It is a lot of, a lot of pressure, but a lot of control. Being an employee, you give up some of that control. People can fire you, but you can also quit, and you get a good salary and you get benefits. A freelancer is the worst. You get neither. You get like all (laughs) (laughs) you get like all of the stress of like finding your own work and doing the sales and doing the BD and like figuring out the taxes, but you don't get like someone investing in you or like total right. control over the people, you're still at the whims of like hiring and firing. And I was like, Oh, I would rather just be an employee or an employer. Like the middle. Interesting. Is <laughs> very interesting. That, was, that was my reflection on it. I was like, Oh, this is like the worst of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, well, I,
0: But I mean, that's a very fair assessment, like for your experience. And I think that, um, I think what I'm very interested in now, right, in terms of where I want to take the, the next question is really is is as you kind of go towards merit, right, you have that kind of meditation or reflection on your career up to that point and, yeah. you know, what you maybe wish you had had. And now you're, you know, the very premise of merit, like this idea of democratizing the professional network, particularly focused like on underserved or underrepresented groups. I think that is obviously very clearly a very passion driven premise and vision. And so, I mean, in your opinion, when embarking on starting a company, is it important to have a vision that you are deeply connected to and passionate about in order to be successful? Um, I would say yes, but I also think
1: that It depends on what kind of founder or it depends on how you define success, right? Like I define success as, you know, you have a finite amount of years on this earth. How many people can I help or benefit before I die? That's I'm like, I'm just trying to maximize that as much as possible. So for me, merit and the mission and the space was like, this is a problem and a space I know really well. I have a point of view on the world. I think with my skills and abilities, I can solve, I can meaningfully solve this problem. It may take... 10 years, it may take five years, it may take 20 years. I don't know, but I think it's worth trying. So, to me, my metric is literally the amount of people we help. Like, that that is the number. Like, when I think about growth as a founder, it's not because I want to impress investors. I literally want to help millions of people, right? Like, I I literally want to do that. For other people, it is, and this is like something where it's like, you know, some people want to be a founder, they want to be the CEO, like the title and the position, the status, and that is very appealing. Some people just want to make money. And it is like, it is a way to generate a lot of wealth in a short period of time, if you're willing to work for it and and take the risk. And those are all like valuable and noble and interesting things to do. Some people just want to do hard stuff. Some people, (laughs) some people just want the challenge. Like, it's kind of like why people like, you know, bungee jump or like, you know, (laughs) know, it's, it's, it's the same shit. It's like, why do, why do people want to bungee jump? They just get something out of it. right? Right. So I think there's all these motivating factors and like, to be honest, it's not pure altruism for me. It's like a little bit of ego and ambition where I do think I'm smarter than most people. So I want to prove that to the world. Like, I just don't wanna right. I want to take that. I want that to exist. So it's not just purely. I just want to help people. Like I have a bit of ego and kind of insecurity around it, too. Um. So for me, it's more just like whatever your motivating factor, just being honest with yourself with what that is. Like, absolutely, um, I, I respect people that are like, I just want to make money. And you're like, honest about them. like, dope. Like that is a clear person. Go make your money. Yeah. Or like, I just want to be the CEO or like, I just don't think I can work a normal job. Like those people, like, just be honest with what it is. For better or for worse, my motivation is genuinely to to help people and to kind of make an impact in the world. And it's kind of backseated with the kind of ego and insecurity of just being like someone who thinks you can do better than the current environment. Like I thought that at Microsoft, I thought that at Hightower and BTS, like I always have a little bit of that Um uh, yeah. It's just like ego, ego and insecurity. Yeah, like, I, think uh, it, I think I, mean, I think can do better though. <laughs> I, I think
0: ego, whether you call it ego confidence, right. I, yeah. I you know, I, 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 I don't see any negative associated with that. And I think what's really important yeah. here is the very, very um, deep honesty. That, And, and I guess uh, like, self-awareness that you have of those things. And I think if you have that, right, it doesn't even matter which motivator it is that you're chasing. If you have that self-awareness, then I think you're going to be able to pursue it. Now, I'm very curious though, because now, you know, Merit is a company that's scaling. You, there are real stakes with the decisions that you're starting to make both in the people that work for you and the careers they're trying to foster themselves, as well as for the people that are uh, benefiting from the platform and service that you've created, so now, right, when you think about that ego and the kind of the decisions you're making, uh, uh, right, like, and particularly around the way that you look at growth, right, mm-hmm. you have to be, you know, very calculated around the types of decisions you make because it's impacting so many people, both in your customers as well as your, uh, or I guess, your end, your end users and your employees. So, yeah. how have you managed that shift in mindset, right, as you've gone from employee? you know, valued startup member to now founder. The stakes are definitely higher. It's definitely like the Spider-Man thing with
1: like great power comes great responsibility. And you're, you're very aware of the mistakes you make and the, the good and bad thing about being a founder is you mostly have no one to blame but yourself. Like you kind of, (laughs) (laughs) it is kind of like, if it works, you should take some credit. If it doesn't work, you should also be like, that didn't work. So you should figure out why it didn't work. Um, So I think, I think just the stakes are higher. So you take it a lot more seriously. And I think like, You know, for me, that actually added a lot of clarity to the work, and it kind of made me a bit calmer in some of the decision making too. I would say that, you know, the mission is the same whether they're employees or investors or or customers, right? Like, you want to have an impact in these people's careers, and you want to do it in an ethical way where you just you center people. Like, that's ultimately what it is. Um, And I think what helps in those things is like you think of like honesty. It's like You know, being honest with people about what the product does or doesn't do, being honest with your employees or what the job is and what the job is not being honest with your investors. Like, you know, we picked a very specific investment strategy where we raise little amounts of capital from individuals. So you grow a little bit slower. You don't get to scale the team you want, but you get to build things a lot more thoughtfully. You get to build leverage in different ways. And we're just honest with the company and the investors about that. We're also honest with like our employees where it's like, you know, right now it's going to be more part time work. It's going to be more project based because we think that's the best way to do it. It's not going to be all these other things. Right. i think the honesty about the trade-offs is the thing i've learned when you're in it when you're a founder which is like the more crystal clear you can be with the trade-offs the easier it is to attract people and then also um, like repel people too sure i think when you when you try to like have it all the ways where you're like you know we're going we're gonna to raise a little bit amount of money, but we're all going to have a dope office. Or, you know, it's like, you can't you can't have it both ways. Or like, we're going to raise a little bit of money, but that means Randy and I probably have to work a little bit more and do some jobs a little bit longer than we'd want to. Whereas right. like other founders, you know, can delegate it, right? And there's pros and cons to it. And it's debatable, like if they're all going to work out, they're all right decisions, but you have to just be honest with it and adapt. Um, so I think the big thing is like the, the adaptability and the honesty, like the intellectual honesty of all this stuff. It's really forced me to be honest with this shit. Um, which you could kind of hide a little bit in the other jobs. You could kind of delay those decisions now. It hits you in the face.
0: Well, but, but you've, you were self-described impatient person, which resonates with me hugely. I'm also (laughs) a very impatient person, but now you just walked me through the fact that you have to make decisions where you need to be in a role or do a job for longer to do something conscientiously or or the right way for the product, for the service, for the platform. How Um. do you manage that? Right. That is an internal conflict that I'm sure you have to overcome.
1: Yeah. I think it's like, um, being the impatience is good at the start, but I think it's actually, it's good at the start where you just need action is the only way out. Like just doing something is better than doing nothing, which is still mostly true. Still true. Now will be true for brother, like X years, just doing something is better than doing nothing. But I feel like the intellectual honesty is about being honest about, you know, Why, if we do something, does it have the effect we want in the world? And are those two things like related? That's like the thing that I've really been stressing with, which is like to give the space of like trying stuff, but then being honest about if I did this, does why happen? Right. That kind of like very simple honesty and setting like what we do in Merit is like we set weekly like experiments or daily goals where like if we do this very explicit thing, then we expect this results in the world. Yeah. It's hypothesis testing, right? Setting that stuff, being honest to it, reviewing it. Um, and then just changing your behavior if something is true or false, like that's it. Like it's very, it's very, very empirical. Startups are very empirical. Either you have users or you don't, either you're growing or you're not, either you have revenue, or you don't either you're growing or you're not. Um, there are a lot of companies that try to avoid that, which is, which is really hard, which leads to all these weird things, but like you have to be, it's like, it is really that simple. Like it is very right. simple stuff, right? It's hard, but it's very simple. I think in bigger companies, it's, They go for the easy stuff where they try to talk around a lot of these things where there's a lot more people, but it makes it, it's like easy, but it's much more complicated, right? Like Startups are very simple. They're just very hard. Um, cause everyone has their own recipe of how to get there, but the impatience is good. It's like, I'm an anxious person. Anxiety is good to be a founder because you do things like anxious people don't sit still. It's like the opposite of anxiety. You just, you send a message, you like text someone, you like code something. Anxiety is good. Impatience is good at the start. Yeah. But to constantly be anxious or constantly be in that state is bad. Cause then you kind of lose perspective. You don't sure. know, like if what you're doing is actually giving the results versus just doing shit. Right. Um, So that that's a thing I've also reflected on in this last quarter of like just being intellectually honest with like just because you get a result doesn't mean the thing that you did got that result. Um, It just means
0: you did something. (laughs) Yeah, that's very fair, and and I I think it's very poignantly put. Um, I'm I'm curious. you know you you've had the experience of going through a merger while being part of a of a startup and i think that you know everything that you've kind of talked about and how you've described what your vision is for for merit right it's a very deeply personal vision because it's something that you wish you had potentially had and it's yeah. something that you 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 are actually participating in the network that you're building also right yeah. so like yep. um yep. I, i'm very curious though like do you see a potential merger would that be something you'd be open to in the future having gone through that or are you very On building this on your own with your co-founder and scaling it, even though that might make it take longer.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very valid question. I think like ultimately in my heart of hearts, like I believe we can, we can make that big business and it's something that kind of goes to IPO, that goes to like a a very meaningful exit. I think now, now that I'm a little bit deeper in it, I'm just more like, whatever gets us to the mission faster. Like if right. we have to do it ourselves, we do that. If we have to get acquired and we get bought, we have to do that. Um, whatever gets us to the vision faster or better. Um, and we, we are totally open to all the ways to do that within our company and with outside of our company. So I'm very, I'm very pragmatic when it comes to that. Um, I always make a joke that in some weird twist of thing, like, you know, LinkedIn will buy this and I'll just end up back at Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we, but we have some ways to go, I think before we're like a good acquirer and like, you know, it takes a yeah. lot of work to be acquired. It's a shit ton of work. Um, we're just not, in my opinion, we're just not there yet, but I, I want us to like, you know, I want us to like grow and help people. That's literally it. I think the act of doing that will get us there. Um, I definitely will have a lot more reflections on being the acquired company that I've gone through the other side. Um, right? Maybe hopefully on this side, a more willing participant. <laughs> of course, yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, I, I and I'm very excited to to kind of hear and and pay and I guess watch from a distance how how merit grows and evolves and kind of as the, what the trajectory is because I think that uh, you know you've built something very special here, right? That is solving a very real problem. Um, yeah. That people have across, you know, all industries. I think, you know, while you started uh focused maybe on technology engineering products, oh, yeah. right? Like it is a problem that exists all over the place that people, yeah. you know, straw. And, and I think maybe we can even talk about this a little bit is, you know, this overlapped with this incredible moment in history we've experienced with the pandemic, where access to mentors and guidance became even more difficult to secure because suddenly yeah. we're all isolated at home, and now this platform, right, solves that problem. I think that I, I, I mean you have to you have to look at that and see the silver lining there. And I guess maybe did it have an accelerative effect on maybe some of the adoption of the platform?
1: Definitely. Definitely. And I think we were very lucky or very smart to how anyone look at it. That Mera was always a remote video first product. It was right. always designed to be used. Like there were just a bunch of like tier, there's just startups, just a bunch of key decisions that work out. Like a key decision of being able to sign up with your personal address, not your company address, being able to do it over video and not in person. Like there's a bunch of key things that we had in place that when COVID hit, we spiked, but also we had, we could just handle that spike and yeah. handle that usage. Um, but what it, what is interesting is like the, what is I think settling now in the second wave of adoption is like this post office world, which is like, we have a remote first world. now. I think we're definitely, for knowledge workers, it's definitely more of a post office world. And uh, the office was a place where you could informally build that network and build those relationships. And conferences are back and, you know, there are, there are a lot more networking tools and mentorship tools than there were when we started than there are now. So now there's a lot more competition. There's a lot more space, but I still think, you know, merit and other tools have still not kind of cracked that net of like, how do you authentically build relationships? Um, with people you don't know yet. Right. Um, right. and that space and that audience is still wide and still out there. Like LinkedIn is still kind of our main competitor because everyone's on LinkedIn and everyone's just trying to message each other. Right. Kind of right. awkwardly. Um, that's still kind of our main competitor, but no one's really cracked that yet. So we've had some boosters. Um, but I still think there's a cultural and kind of like, not like product, but I would say like distribution and like, uh, almost like philosophical way of approaching this stuff that still isn't quite mainstream. So we're still a little bit like ahead of the curve there. Um, so I still feel like Merit is a pre-mainstream product. Like I, I'm always blown away. It's like a free product and you can talk yeah. to like hundreds of people and it still requires work to convince people to use it, which makes me feel like there's still a lot of work to do You know?
0: right? Like- <laughs> no, I, I think it's very fair, yeah. but I think
1: you've articulated
0: that beautifully, right? This uh, this idea that, you know, maybe yes, it was, a, a, you know, a well-timed, but there's still so much to solve and it is a challenging Uh, a thing that you guys are embarking on solving, which is kind of replicating that in-person interaction and fast tracking the development of a relationship with something, you know, with a pretty meaningful objective, like, uh, um, you know, a, a mentor, there's a, it is both transactional and kind of uh, organic in a way, because you need to build a real relationship in order to have a valuable value extracted from that. Right. So I think, um, you know, it is a very tough problem to solve, but it's an important problem to solve. And particularly given the lens you're going, doing it through in terms of helping underrepresented groups, uh, really. being able to benefit from this. And so, you know, I'm very excited to see you know how this evolves over time and also just want to say thank you for this fantastic conversation. I, I genuinely do look forward to having another one of these in a, in a little while once you can see where you are down the line, but this was fantastic. I think there's a lot for people to take away from this. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.